You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. You're using that. Isaiah 53, and I'm going to read from verse 7. This is um, from chapter 52, verse 13 through to the end of chapter 53 is a poem or a song in five different verses, and this is us on verse 4. The first verse is spoken about, uh, it's a kind of summary of the whole song. The second verse has uh, spoken about Christ not being desired and Him being a man of sorrows. Uh, The third verse talks about how He carried our sin. We'd all gone astray and He carries our sin. And then this one speaks of his oppression, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Who are you? It's a simple question that obviously has profound implications. Uh, How we think of ourselves will really affect how we behave and how we feel. And um, our, our society actually does struggle with that issue a lot. Um, It seems as though this year, especially those of my generation, youngish, but not as young as some of you, that all the people we grew up with are dying. And this week is no different, Muhammad Ali. That's just amazing, Muhammad Ali dying. Um, He was, if you don't know who Muhammad Ali is, you really do need to get some culture. But he um, was the most famous boxer ever. Even people who weren't interested in boxing would watch Muhammad Ali, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and, uh, and so on. He's also incredibly arrogant, uh, incredibly arrogant. Some of us here are quite arrogant. Muhammad Ali just makes us look totally humble. And uh, my favorite Muhammad Ali story, actually, I have to tell you this because I just thought it was brilliant, uh, is one where he was on a plane and the stewardess came up to him and said, you need to put your seatbelt on, sir. And she said, uh, he said to her, Muhammad Ali, Superman. Superman don't need no belt. And she said, Superman don't need no plane either. <laughs> and <laughs> which was a very smart answer to him. He's very full you know, of himself. And we live in a culture where um, I, I read something this week about an institute that's teaching children, basically, that they, you, uh, it's saying to parents, you must always listen to your children, you must never interrupt them. I think this has got to be somebody who's never had children or has forgotten. But also, they're, they're then going on to say, and you have to teach your children that they are the absolute best in the world because it's about their self-esteem. But our culture really struggles with that because it, it says all of that. And then, um, for those of you who were here last week, Uh, Dominic gave an excellent sermon on 
from Ecclesiastes on the folly of reductionism. And by the way, if you haven't heard it, please do go to the website and, and listen to it because it's well worth listening to because it summarizes or expands rather on what I'm summarizing here. It's called the folly of reductionism because reductionism says you are just what you are made of and what you are made of is chemicals and atoms. So if you ask the question, who are you? You say, well, I'm just a bunch of chemicals. I'm just a bunch of atoms. Really? So if I or somebody kills you, it's just rearranging atoms. In the same way as you break up a chair, it's rearranging atoms. We don't like that at all. I listened this week again to a wonderful talk from Al Mohler on this about uh, those who accept this reductionist view, this naturalistic view, this materialistic view. And to put it simply, the view says simply this, that there's no spiritual, there's no soul, that you are what you are in terms of material things only. You are chemicals, you are atoms, and that is it. Moeller cites Stephen Cave, a philosopher, who wrote uh, an incredible article in a magazine called The Atlantic, where he said this, there's no such thing as free will, but we're better off believing in it anyway. When you are a reductionist, when you are a materialist, what you believe ultimately is this, that everything we do is predetermined by our genes, and then you end up just simply saying, we are not responsible for what we do. It's a bit like the child, the the child who's brought up in a Christian home who thinks that they've got their parents beat when their parents want to give them a row for doing something wrong and the child says, it wasn't me, it was the devil made me do it. Well, the kind of naturalistic way of saying that, I can't help it. It's the way I've been predetermined by my genes. Now think about what that means. That means that in the horrific case of the two women from Fife who tortured and killed their child... They can just turn around and say, it wasn't our fault. It was our neurons. It was our genes. It was our chemistry. If you really believe that, imagine what kind of world you will end up living in. But we know that there is moral responsibility and there is accountability. In fact, our whole civilization is built on that. It's how we have law. It's how we have education. It's how we have families and so on. We are responsible But then, if it's scary thinking we're not responsible and we're just whatever our atoms are, that's scary and horrific and hellish, actually. It's also scary thinking that we are responsible and we are accountable. Because what happens when things go wrong? What happens when we do something wrong? What happens when we cannot get rid of the wrong that we do. That is humanity's big problem. And that is the, here is the answer given to that in this song. And so I want us to look at this, and I want you to think about it in terms of your own life and who you are. If you genuinely, honestly think that you are just atoms then I'm serious about this, actually. We need to meet up and we need to talk because that is such a dangerous view. 
It's such a demeaning view for yourself and for others. And it is such a foolish view that absolutely I'd be prepared to sit and talk and discuss and try and help you to see that that cannot be the case. But I think most of us probably accept that that's not the case. But then what are we going to do about the things that are wrong? Many of us and many religious people will do this. They'll say, I'll put it right. I'll fix it. I'll get it sorted. And in that sense, you're like me as a husband around the house. And what I mean by that is totally useless. You know, like I I cannot fix things. I know that there are men here who I'm incredibly envious of, and you're like Superman, not Muhammad Ali, but you're, you know, you can, you know, the... It doesn't matter what breaks in your house, you can fix it. Listen, it doesn't matter what breaks in my house, I couldn't fix it. It really, I'm just useless in that sense. So, the reaction gets, look, the fridge door is broken or something, I'll fix it. What it means is, I'll never get round to it. I'd like to fix it. One day, once I read a manual or get someone to teach me, I'll be able to fix it or whatever. But my version of fixing it is phoning up somebody. Can you come around and fix it? A lot of us with our sin, we have this notion that sometime in the future we'll get it sorted. But we're kind of busy just now and there's a lot of different things. And maybe we can't at the moment, but we'll be able to. And actually as you go on in life, you realize, I I just, I can't fix it. I can't fix myself. So this is where this comes in. Now, uh, verse 7 is about the trial of Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. There is the victim's silence. In Jeremiah eleven nineteen. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me. Or Jeremiah 12, 3. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart from the day of slaughter. Christ was taken to the cross, and as we'll see, he died for our sins. But in this bit, we're talking about as, as he goes, he's on trial, and he's been accused, and he can answer, and he doesn't answer. He keeps silent. Peter describes it in this way, 1 Peter 2, 23, to this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There is a silence that comes from guilt. There is a silence that comes from weakness. There is a silence that comes from not knowing what to say. And there is a silence that comes from love and faith, not weakness. Because Jesus is taking all the abuse and all the hurt and all the pain, and he is entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Incidentally, for those of us who profess to be Christians, and I'm looking in a mirror here as much as I'm looking at anybody else, we need to learn that. Not the silence of cowardice, not the silence of ignorance, 
but the silence of faith, trusting that God will deal with it justly. And that's what Jesus did. He went like a lamb to the slaughter. The sheep before her uh, shearers is silent. Now, if any of you have ever been involved in a sheep shearing, I used to do a lot with my granddad, my dad. Um, yeah, there are sheep that make a lot of noise, but it's incredible really actually how silent sometimes they can be. But here is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, going to the cross, being horrendously mocked, horrendously abused, being charged with things he did not do, and yet remaining silent. Because the second aspect of this is how voluntary it was. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, verse 8. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Now, here's the key thing, and that's why I introduced this in this way. Sin is sin because it is conscious and deliberate and moral. Sin is not sin if it's something that's unconscious or um, something that's an accident. So, for example, um, I drop something out of my hand, it lands on your head, that's an accident. I deliberately throw it at your head, that is not an accident, that is violence. And the important thing about sin, and that's why, by the way, if you believe that human beings are just atoms, you don't believe in sin. And I want to put it the other way around, actually. I think it's because you don't want to believe in sin that you believe that human beings are just atoms. Ultimately, you can't say that anything is sinful or wrong. I'm sorry, but the two ladies who, who killed their child... How can anyone say it's sinful or wrong if there is no sin and no wrong? You have no basis on which to make any judgment of them. And that would be the hellish world in which we would live if we had that. But sin is something that is conscious and deliberate. And that's why sin can't just be dealt with by saying, oh, well, forget it, it doesn't matter because it does matter. It was conscious and deliberate, and it's conscious and deliberate rebellion against God. So, if someone is going to pay for that sin, it's logical and it makes sense that the, there must be a willing victim, and that, by the way, is one of the problems in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's why the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, because animals do not consciously sin, and they do not consciously do good or bad. They just don't. I mean, you know the story, you've seen the news of the gorilla uh, being shot and, you know, everyone being up in arms about it and so on. Well, would you, would you take that gorilla when the child falls in the pen and the, who knows what the gorilla is going to do with it? But would you, if, if as the gorilla picks up that child, maybe batters that child or kills that child, would you put the gorilla on trial? Of course not. Because although you might say that we're just glorified gorillas or chimpanzees or whatever, we have something that they do not. We have human bodies. They have bodies. Um, we, we have many things that are similar 
But what we have that they do not is a sense of accountability and a sense of morality, and we are able to sin. There is no point in looking at a dog and saying it's evil. Dogs are not evil. Human beings are. It's funny sometimes, isn't it? You know how you say this about humans? We'll say, they behave worse than an animal. Really? No animal behaves as badly as human beings do. It's the wrong way around to put it. So, the sacrificial lamb of Exodus that I think is reflected here, the cry of John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin in the world the sin of the world. This sheep and this lamb being mentioned together, by the way, indicating Isaiah was concerned about the dumbness of the, you know, the silence uh, more than perhaps the whole sacrificial lamb alone of it. But Christ is that. Christ is the one who was afflicted. He was stricken by God, verse 4 says, smitten by him and afflicted. In verse 7, it's the same word that's used in verse 4, but in, in this sense, In verse 7, it's a reflexive thing. It's something that he allows to happen to himself. The emphasis in this verse is very much on what Christ has done. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. In other words, what Isaiah is teaching us here is that the Son of God, the Messiah who was to come, who was to be sacrificed, he sacrificed himself. Human eyes will see him at the mercy of hostile forces, hostile human and perhaps even hostile divine forces, will see him smitten by God, stricken by God. The theologically instructed eye, someone who understands, sees Christ as the sin bearer carrying our sin. And here, there is something that is very profound and very deep, and it is Christ taking upon himself the oppression, and the suffering. Christ is not caught in a web of events, but he is deciding, he is submitting to, he is accepting. The servant does nothing, says Kleins. The servant says nothing, but the servant lets everything happen. Not my will, but your will be done. Now, to me, this is a very sacred spot because this is the inner thoughts of Christ, the inner consciousness of Christ. He wasn't just going along with events. He wasn't just being rushed along. He was deliberately and self-consciously offering himself. You would have no power over me. You would have no power over me unless it were given you from above. So Christ is conscious that the Father is orchestrating all of this, and at the same time, He is willingly giving Himself. It's this procession again in verse 7, that He's the servant led out to die. There's no physical resistance. There's no dragging of the feet. There's no verbal resistance. There's no um, crying out, arguing. I listened um, to... Mr. Keller, this morning before I came out, just wonderful sermon on the cross in which he talks about Jesus crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the word that's used there, he points out, is the word for screaming. Jesus screamed, but he didn't scream at his friends and he didn't scream about his, his, his bones and about his physical agony. What he screamed about was being separated from his 
Father. And he knew that that was coming. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood because he knew it was coming. He's not an ignorant beast who doesn't know what's coming around the corner. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. Isaiah comes to realize that. This servant was willing to die. This is not sin as failure, where you just say it's just a pity. This is sin as moral defect, but also sin as willfulness, willfully going against God. You will not be judged by God because you did something accidentally. You will not be judged by God because stuff just happened to you. You are judged by God for what you deliberately and self-consciously do in rebellion against Him. And this is where, I'm coming back to where we came in. The great lie that our culture tells us is the great lie of the devil, which is, to put it in Scots, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It's not my fault. It's my parents. It's my background. It's whatever. You can think of all the things that you and I can blame. Now, I have to be quite careful here because I'm aware that there are people who can become ill or who can do things which they are not responsible for. They don't have, if you like, mental capacity. But by definition, they are, if you like, dehumanized. They are not responsible. They're losing something highly significant. When you lose your moral accountability and freedom, you lose everything. You are turned into a robot. And that's not where we are. Yes, there are things that we can look at and we can say, well, I was compelled to do that or this maybe. Right, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the things for which we are accountable. God does not hold you accountable for things that you are not accountable for. But he does hold you accountable for the things that you are. And for me, that's an overwhelming thing. But what is happening here is Jesus is coming along and he's saying, I'll take it. I will be accountable for his deliberate and conscious sin. Human beings will say, we will not have this man to reign over us. And no animal can substitute for that rebellion. Only a person, only a willing will can overcome a rebellious will. And there's the great exchange again that we keep talking about, which is so important. I am unwilling to obey God. I am unwilling to do what is right and pure and good and holy. I will be sinful, but Christ is willing for me. There's the procession. There's his execution. He was taken from prison, arrested, confined. It's the judgment of God. Ezekiel 5.8. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Psalm 143 verse 2 says this, Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. Christ was executed. Christ was taken and killed and executed. He died for us. And then this phrase, uh, just to me, a wonderful phrase, He was cut off from the land of the living. Who can speak of His descendants? That, I think, is... Uh, the right way of putting it, it could be who has believed, 
but the Septuagint version, which is quoted in Acts 8, verse 33, in his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. I, I think that fits here a, a lot better. Because what he's saying is this. There's this great injustice. Jesus was taken before he could have children, if you like, in human eyes. He was taken. How could he have any descendants? And yet, here am I and the children God has given me. Christ, if you like, was going to have so many more descendants because of this. The servant is identified with sinners in our condemnation, verses 4 and 5. He's without sin in verse 9, and he's acceptable to a holy God. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Again, this just incredible teaching of substitutionary atonement. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. See, yeah, there's, there's so many ways to apply this, and the, and, and the most simple way is just simply this. Just to say this, that the punishment that you and I deserve, Christ took. He paid for it. How do we know all this, by the way? How do we know God accepted it? Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. The NIV is wrong here, actually, because what it's trying to do, I think, is, I think it's trying to get this idea of um, the wicked and the rich being together and so on, and that does happen sometimes, particularly in, in Isaiah. But the Hebrew is singular. It says he was buried with a rich man. And that just didn't make sense. When you were reading this passage, and you read it in Isaiah's context, it wouldn't make any sense until you get to Jesus and his death and burial and Matthew 27, verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb they had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. That was a prophecy being fulfilled. People don't like the idea of prophecy being fulfilled. Why? God is God. He can prophesy things, and these things happen. That is what happened. He was buried with the wicked. Wicked is plural. He was buried with the rich, a rich man. How could a de condemned man receive a rich man's burial? Well, as I say, I think it's a prophecy. I think it's also saying that Jesus died our, our, our death, and he was buried with the wicked as well. And I think it's setting up in contrast who it is that died, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. If you had to summarize the human race as we are faced today, yes, there are incredibly good things, incredibly beautiful things. We are, after all, made in the image of God. But what mucks us up, what screws us up, is violence and deceit. Imagine you could click your fingers, the violence gone. No more abuse. No more killing. No more destruction. No more wars. No more deceit. 
No more traffickers saying to people, you give us $2,000 and we'll get you to Europe and you'll live in Europe happily ever after, and then locking them in, a, in an unseaworthy vessel, which when it goes down, they drown. No more politicians coming on our television and telling us this, that, and the other thing about the European referendum or if we elect them or other different things. And we know that there's so much deceit. When you go to work tomorrow, when people tell you, oh, don't worry, everything's fine, and they're lying to you. There's violence and deceit in this world. There was no violence and deceit in Christ. He is the only one about whom it could be said that there was no violence and deceit. And I'm sorry, if if you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I'm not violent and I don't deceive, you're deceiving yourself. Sure, you may not go out and smack someone around the face, but you have violent thoughts, and you say violent words. And yes, I'm sorry, you do deceive, and so do I. We all do. There's only one who didn't. Now, this message of Christ dying for our sins and Christ taking our place, it's foolishness. Message of, it always has been. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How does God deal with the violence and deceit? By himself wiping out? No. He deals with the violence and deceit by dealing with its causes and its consequences. And he does it through Christ. There's an old um, church father called uh, Gregory. And he has just a wonderful Um, description of this. I'll read it to you. It's, It's a little bit lengthy, but bear with it. He says, he talks about Jesus, and he says, he prays. Jesus prays, but he hears prayer. He weeps, but he causes tears to cease. He asks where Lazarus was laid, for he was man. But he raises Lazarus, for he was God. He is sold and very cheap, for it is only for 30 pieces of silver. But he redeems the world, and that at a great price, for the price was his own blood. As a sheep he is led to the slaughter, but he is the shepherd of Israel, and now of the whole world also. As a lamb he is silent, yet he is the word, and is proclaimed by the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is bruised and wounded, but he heals every disease and every infirmity. He is lifted up and nailed to the tree, but by the tree of life he restores us. Yes, he saves even the robber crucified with him. Yes, he wrapped the visible world in darkness. He is given vinegar to drink mingled with gall. Who? He who turned the water into wine, who is the destroyer of the bitter taste, who is sweetness and altogether desire. He lays down his life, but he has power to take it again. And the veil is rent, for the mysterious doors of heaven are opened. The rocks are cleft. The dead arise. He dies, but he gives life. And by his death destroys death. He is buried, but he rises again. He goes down into hell, but he brings up the soul. He ascends to heaven and shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. There is a mass of contradictions in this And they are wonderful contradictions. This is the love of Christ 
the one who was no unwilling martyr, no weak victim, nor some kind of hard religious fanatic. He was without sin, without violence, without deceit, without lies. He is altogether beautiful, and it is this beautiful one who came and took our sin, our violence, our lies, and carried them and made them his own. No one takes it from me, he said, but I lay it down of my own accord. Romans 5, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Don't you dare sit and wallow in your guilt and sin and say, it's too much for Jesus. My sin is too great. Don't be so self-absorbed. Don't pile misery upon yourself by looking at yourself. Look away to Christ. There is nothing that you have done which His beauty does not overcome. And that's why you are so invited to come to Christ again and again and again. Jesus didn't come to save atoms. He didn't come to rearrange creative furniture. He came to save us because we matter. Because we are made in the image of God. Last Sunday, Dominic mentioned John Donne. And I just absolutely adore John Donne's poetry. So I took the excuse, finishing with his probably most famous poem. Although he didn't write it as a poem, he wrote it as prose. But John Donne's prose, prose is poetry. You'll know some of the phrases in this. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Don understood that we are precious, that our, our lives matter, that when someone dies, we mourn because it's not a rat being killed. It's not furniture being rearranged. It's someone made in the image of God, and death is an enemy. And Jesus came to die that death might itself die. You're not an island. You're not a collection of atoms. And your death is something that is harmful to the rest of humanity. Even more so if you die hopeless without Christ. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Please understand that... Our world's view of what humans are is fundamentally anti-human. Here's the paradox. The paradox is if you accept the beliefs of the humanists, you are anti-human. If you accept what God says, humanity is elevated up to heaven to be with Christ. And in that sense, it's your choice. You choose, and I don't think anyone, by the way, will consistently live with the humanistic worldview. It's, it's because it is so horrible. 
You can choose, I think, I know, you can choose to accept what Christ says and to follow him and to accept his forgiveness and say, Lord, I can't do it, but you can. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.